0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bridget Kendall, and I'm master of Peterhouse, and it's very good indeed to have you all here, and especially our colleagues from the LSE. Welcome back to your wartime home. (laughs) The idea of this reunion arose as the result of a visit by your LSE director, Damien Shafik, a couple of years ago. And on her way from the Master's Lodge across to college, she happened to see the LSE evacuation plaque on the Peterhouse Hostel. And she looked at the plaque, and she looked at me, and we both simultaneously had the thought that since this September 2019 marks the 80th anniversary of the evacuation in 1939, why not bring our two institutions together again to commemorate it? I should add that it's clearly a piece of history which captures the public imagination. My study in the Master's Lodge next to the hostel means that I can see out of the window that there are scores, if not hundreds of visitors in high tourist season every day who take the time to stop and look at the plaque, marvel at the idea of the evacuation, and take photographs. Now, our last joint commemoration of the evacuation was in 1989, when many of those who attended were former evacuees. You may have seen some of their names and the photos of the occasion on the board outside in the Lubbock Room. Sadly, now 80 years on from the beginning of the evacuation, we couldn't hope to see so many of them again. But we are delighted to welcome back Mickey Watkins, who studied at the LSE during the war, our own Jacques Hyman, who was here as a student during the the time, Gillian and Julia, the widow and daughter of Norman Mackenzie, who was another wartime LSE student, and Basil Poston, whose father, the late Sir Michael Poston, helped provide the initial glue between the two institutions, both being both an LSE alumnus and, from 1938, Cambridge Professor of Economic History and a fellow here at Peterhouse. And we do have some of the children of LSE evacuees among us. Our own Peterhouse Emeritus Fellow, Martin Golding, whose mother, Joy, was here during the war. Michael Phillips, whose father and mother were both here among the evacuees, an instance of LSE Peterhouse romance, I imagine, during the war. <laughs> and here on the panel, Lord Nick Stern, both LSE professor and Peterhouse Honorary Fellow, and a former undergraduate here, inspired to choose this college because his mother, Marion was an LSE evacuee at Peterhouse. And there are others here who enjoy affiliations to both places. On the panel, among them Christina Spohr and Geraint Thomas, who are both at LSE and Peterhouse at various times. My own partner, Amanda, here in the audience, now thoroughly immersed in life at Peterhouse, but also an LSE history alumna. So what do we know of that wartime experience? Well, the LSE arrived in Cambridge in 1939. Their wartime headquarters was the Peterhouse Hostel, just across the road. All their letters said, Wartime address, the hostel. (laughs) LSE students were billeted in private homes around the city, came together for teaching and social occasions at Grove Lodge down the road. It's now part of the Fitzwilliam Museum, but in those days, it belonged to Peterhouse. And some of the academics from LSE were invited to live in college alongside Peterhouse fellows and join them at high table every night. It seems that, at first, the new arrangement took some getting used to, with the LSE staff not entirely convinced the evacuation was necessary. In 1940, the relative peace of the so-called phony war prompted the LSE director, Sir Alexander <coughs> Morris Carr Sanders, to see if he could move, back to, move his um, establishment back to London. He was told firmly by London to stay put. So we have in the archives a letter of apology he wrote to the master of Peterhouse, Paul Velicott, asking if they could keep their Peterhouse accommodation after all. (laughs) Evidently an episode of some irritation and embarrassment on both sides. But after that, the evacuees settled down to life in Cambridge and stayed here till the end of the war. At the undergraduate level, it was very international student community, certainly the LSE contingent, involving refugees from parts of Europe under fascist rule. Stephen Wheatcroft, uh, an LSE contemporary of Nick Stern's mother Marion, recalled it was a close-knit club of men and women who would stay in touch for the rest of their lives. And another of Marion's friends, Christopher Freeman, remembers fervent conversations about left-wing causes, sing-songs, and high-spirited parties, but also the terrifying experience of bombs falling because Cambridge was not entirely immune from bombing raids. Another LSE evacuee, Mary Wilson, who dived under the table when the bombs fell, remembered Cambridge as a magical place during the blackout. But she recalled that in the second year, the euphoria subsided. Uh, Many more students left to join up, and the wartime atmosphere became more serious. And no doubt, because of that call-up, by 1943 to 44, over two-thirds of the LSE students here were women. At the level of the academics, the fellows, The wartime letters that have survived in the Peterhouse archives reflect a real warmth on both sides. Gratitude from the LSE fellows, affection on the Peterhouse side for their companionship. And when the time came to go back to London, R.H. Tawney expressed his thanks for Peterhouse welcoming in this invasion of strangers, as he put it. However well-intentioned, it must have been a nuisance, and on occasion some hint of irritation would have been more than pardonable, he continued, but you were kindness itself. On the Peterhouse side, Roy Lubbock noted that, the society of your colleagues has been one of the bright side of the war for us. In other words, six years of war may have been traumatic, but the evacuation and this somewhat unlikely collaboration between these two establishments, Cambridge's oldest and smallest college and London University's Fabian-inspired mecca of social sciences, turned out to be a bonus and an unlikely compensation. There was, however, one chilling coda, which the archives reveal. A copy of a letter Paul Velicott, still master of Peterhouse, wrote in confidence to Carr Saunders at the LSE some five years later, in October 1950. Just supposing, he writes, your school were advised by the government under certain circumstances to leave London again. Would Cambridge and this college, in particular, be your choice? Nothing could be more welcome if the circumstances should make it necessary, was Saunders' reply. And the circumstances in the autumn of 1950 that prompted that veiled exchange, the Korean War, of course, and possibly the fear that with both Soviet Russia and the United States' now atomic powers, it might go nuclear. One further word before I hand over to Manoush to introduce and chair the panel on why this anniversary is worth remembering. As I said, it was an unlikely collaboration between two very different institutions. But let us also remember that World War II showed that international crises and trauma could bring people together and shape new possibilities. The post-World War II liberal order, for one, made possible partly because of a determination that the horrors of war should never happen again. It led to the creation of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and that first germ of an idea about a a European Union. And so if this anniversary of ours uh, is surely also a useful moment to see if in our own troubled age, perhaps crises can still be opportunities to pull people together and do something differently. After all, we certainly face enough crises. The European order in trouble, the international order weakened, the Middle East embroiled in conflict, our own British politics, well, seemingly broken and totally shaken to the core, not to mention climate change, economic and technological challenges that are turning people inwards and away from each other. So, this reunion, I hope, will be a delightful way of looking back, but also a way to look forward, to think how academic collaboration can harness the power of ideas to find the impetus to drive the change that is, once again, so urgently needed. Over to you, Minouche.
1: Thank you Bridget for those, for those remarks and for your hospitality today and thank you retrospectively for the extraordinary hospitality that Peter House showed to the LSE 80 years ago. So 80 years ago our predecessors uh, at the LSE and Peterhouse took a radical decision rooted in necessity. LSE had to vacate its campus in central London to make space because of the war for the Ministry of Works. And the then director of the LSE, Carl Saunders, and the master of Peterhouse, Paul Velicott, agreed that the LSE would move to Peterhouse and would charge 3 pounds and 3 shillings a week for <laughs> boarding. <laughs> and this is all very documented in the archives. Now, of course, necessity is often the mother of invention. Obvious bedfellows, so to speak. Peterhouse was Cambridge's oldest college founded in 1284. It was all male. It was very British. It was extremely conservative. The LSE was a young upstart established almost 600 years later. And at that stage, because most of the men were on war duty. And it was also populated by an assortment of immigrants. For example, most of the economics teacher teaching that was done in Cambridge at the time was done by Frederick Hayek, an Austrian, and Arthur Lewis, a West Indian, both of whom went on to win the Nobel Prize. And after alluded to, they all seemed to get on for about six years when the LSE moved back to its home on Houghton Street. I suspect a lot of people had to jump over their own shadows. They had to mix with people who were very different than them, learn new customs and habits, make compromises to accommodate difference. In modern parlance, we'd say they got out of their comfort zones and familiar bubbles. That's, how we, that's what we say now. But I think that history holds great lessons. The social science research says. It, sh- it says that mixed groups are more robust, Diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams, that people who are exposed. And at a time when politics and the media are pushing people into echo chambers, we as universities need to preserve that space for different views colliding with each other. I can't think of two economists who were more different than Hayek and Lewis. I can't think of two educational institutions that could have been more different than Peterhouse and the LSE in 1939. And yet they happily coexisted, and I'm sure they were all the richer for it. Which brings me to the the theme of today's panel, the power of ideas and academic impact. Now I spent most of my career in the so-called real world, uh, 25 years of it in fact, and I know the reality of crisis decision-making, coping with market pressure, operating in a second or third-best world. Academic life is on a different timetable. But as is so often the case, there are some parallels. And of course, as so often the case, Keynes explained it clearly. He said, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence, are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler from a few years back. And the key lesson for me is that academic scribblers need to be working on the right issues so that when these practical men and women are ready to make decisions, we have something interesting to say. Now, of course, some academics go into the real world directly, as did Keynes, Beveridge, Robbins, Bevan, and so many more. But the influence of ideas has a longer, has longer leads and lags to it. And today is an opportunity for us to think about what those issues are that need new thinking and whose ripple effects we hope to see last for a very long time in the years to come, which brings me to our excellent panel this evening. We have five speakers. I'm going to introduce them briefly now, and then each of them are going to say a few words in about five minutes about a particular theme that they're preoccupied with, and then we'll open the conversation to discussion. So I'm going to start with Professor Christina Spohr, who is, did her PhD here at Peter House and is now a professor at the international, in the International History Department at the LSE uh, and is currently the Helmut Schmidt Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins but is coming back to the LSE this autumn. She'll be followed by Patrick uh, Milton, who is a research fellow here at Peter House and uh, is a historian of early modern Europe and is working on the lessons from Westphalia for the Middle East. He'll be followed by Dr. Grant Thomas, who did his PhD at the LSE and is here at Peterhouse, and is a, is a Cambridge historian of 20th century Britain and 20th century British politics. Fourth will be Laura, Professor Laura diaz anandon who's a Professor of Climate Change Policy here at the University of Cambridge. And last, but certainly not least, will be Professor Nick Stern, who is uh, our very own uh, LSE but uh, LSE faculty, but also obviously was an undergraduate here at Peter House and he's also the chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment and the head of the India Observatory at LSE. So, let's start with Christina.
2: Well, thank you um, Bridget and Minouche uh, for your stimulating and thought-provoking opening words and also for raising specific <coughs> issues of peace and war, of race, gender, and diversity, of differences and potential synergies between real world and academic world. I consider myself lucky, that, as a Finnish German citizen, I have been able to benefit from both Peterhouse and LSE. Arriving in Peterhaus in 1997 as an MPhil and then PhD student, my eyes were opened to the oldest, very fine, very British, and then still very conservative and male-dominated Cambridge College. Women had only been admitted 12 years earlier, yet I was elected MCR president in 1998. I wondered how to lead and shape Patreon student affairs with an eye to the 20th century, 21st century. Academically, Peterhouse opened the world to me, an inspiring place to undertake research on the German question after unification. Why did some still fear the Fourth Reich? Why others a German-dominated EU? Why was there so much skepticism half a century after the war? At the same time, nobody seemed too bothered about Helmut Kohl's sauna friendship with Boris Yeltsin or Gerhard Schröder's deals with Vladimir Putin. Seeing Germany from Peterhaus challenged me. After the PhD, there was a stint at NATO headquarters in the Secretary General's office before taking up a lectureship in LSE's International History Department. Now, I was thrust into working in Britain's capital, in the most famous social science institution where many of my students hope to become future leaders in politics, business, and NGOs. My perspective in research terms opened out from Europe to the world, to the question of global order. And so, I turned to researching 1989 and what came after the Berlin Wall and Tiananmen Square massacre from a global perspective. I have myself vivid but fragmentary memories of living through that time, albeit half consciously. The fascinating challenge, therefore, for me as a contemporary historian, is to try to understand those events both in detail and also in their full context from multiple perspectives. And my eyes were opened further by spending last year on leave from LSE as a professor in Washington. That's why I wrote Post Wall, Post Square, Rebuilding the World After 1989, which will be published next week on the 3rd of October. I have come to see this period 1989 to 1992 as the hinge years opening out from the Cold War into a new era that we still inhabit today. What struck me was the peaceful nature of the sudden change of world order, unlike 1815, 1919, 1945. How was this possible? On one level, upheavals had stemmed from major structural shifts in geopolitics and in the global economy. On another, they had been propelled by people power, mass protest and electoral revolution, and magnified by transnational diffusion. But leaders mattered too, and this is one of the key themes in my book. To avoid anarchy or even conflict, this moment of decision-making required cooperation. But these were men and one woman with very different ideological outlooks, (coughs) historical baggage, and domestic constraints. Still, they genuinely tried to harness the cooperative spirit to find win-win solutions. Certainly in Europe post-war was a time of cooperation, and it included Russia well into the 1990s. The management of peaceful transformation, I argue, went through the stages of conservation adaptation and reinvention. To be sure, a Europe whole and free was made on largely Western terms and through Western institutions. And West Germany effectively ended up absorbing the DDR. As a result, this remaking of Europe through democratization and marketization only fed the triumphalist Western narrative. But this was not the only path out of the Cold War. There was no end of history, no universalization of democracy. Crucially, Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese Communist Party leadership would not allow for political protest. In fact, sobered by the erosion of communist authority in Eastern Europe, the Chinese Communist Party regime cracked down vigorously in June 1989 and reasserted its control. Post square was not like post wall. And today, 30 years on, this duality is key to our understanding of the nature of the challenge to the global post-Cold War order as we have known it. American hegemony is now under pressure by China, that under Xi aims to be the third superpower by 2050, and by post-Soviet Russia, which is keen, like China, to see a multipolar balance of power in the global system recognized. Both these countries, through cyber attacks and other means, wage non-linear war on democracy and liberalism. As Putin boldly asserted in June 2019, the liberal idea that underpinned Western democracy for decades has outlived its purpose and become obsolete. The leaderships in Moscow and Beijing now feel it is time to establish what they call the post-West world order. The post-war idea of harnessing of the cooperative spirit that underpinned, was underpinned by mutually agreed common values and language and a desire for multilateralism to build a better world in the 90s is clearly under attack. So, let us remind ourselves, as Bridget and Minouche highlighted at the beginning, How enriching it is when diverse people and nations cooperate constructively and peacefully without giving up their own interests. As much as cooperation is about deeds, it is also about pragmatic dialogue, about finding compromise through common words. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Thanks, Christina. Um.
3: Yes, so unlike many of the other panelists here, I don't really have an LSE link. I'm only affiliated to PTALS, but my first point of contact came actually many years ago when I applied as an undergraduate to read international history at the LSE, but was rejected. And, uh, but it's okay, PTALS took me instead, they had me, so I ended up doing my undergraduate degree here and then went on to do a PhD on the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and that's what has to some extent remained my focus. Uh, The Holy Roman Empire has long been seen as a kind of model or as a source of inspiration for changes to the world order or to the European order, both at at that time, during the early modern period, it was seen by Jean-Jacques Rousseau as being central to the European system, to the balance of power, and then later by, for example, the Abbe de Saint-Pierre as being a possible model for rearrangement of Europe, a Europe in which individual states would lose their sovereignty just as the constituent statelets, the imperial estates of the empire had a limited form of sovereignty. Um, So one of the main peace treaties and constitutional elements of that empire was the Peace of Westphalia, which ended a long, destructive war. Um, And that piece of Westphalia has in many ways colored and and shaped the way in which contemporary thinkers um, imagine the international system. Uh, It's often seen as the sort of the progenitor of a system of sovereign states, of a system of non-intervention, of a system of international law as we know it today. the research project that i 'm working on now very much takes the view that this view that this interpretation of Westphalia is actually a misunderstanding, and that if you look at the, the reality of the way in which West, Westphalia was negotiated, the impact it had on Europe and on <coughs> the, the future relationship between the state and, 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 and its subjects between religions, then that can offer a lot of lessons for um, for ending conflicts that are in some ways similar to the wars that were ended at the Peace of Westphalia. So specifically, I'm looking at the Peace of Westphalia as a source of inspiration to end the the new wars in the Middle East. Um, And this is something that is, in in fact, requested from the region. We've held a number of workshops, and during those workshops, we've heard from a number of uh, speakers who mentioned that they often hear from the region, the, the request of more information on how Europe dealt with similar issues in the past. Um, and so this is very much a case of, Manoush um, mentioned the, the importance of the real world and, and, how, that, and how academic uh, research might have an impact on that. This is sort of a case of the real world requesting academic impact in terms of new solutions that can be furnished by the Peace of Westphalia. And I think the reason why this this piece, Settlement, is so apt as a a possible new source of inspirations is because of the set of of similarities that exist and, and the parallels that exist then and now. On the one hand, there are structural similarities. These are now cases in which there are asymmetrical wars in which different kinds of actors are fighting each other, state actors, non-state actors, sub-state actors, transnational actors. That was also the case during the Thirty Years' War. Also, sequences of escalation are very similar. Conflicts that start as rebellions within states uh, for greater political freedoms, for, for confessional religious freedoms, then turn into civil war. Um, they, they sort of draw in outside intervention. They export instability. They create proxy wars which then further escalate to direct military intervention which then merges into the sort of asymmetrical wars that we've been seeing now and that also existed in the Thirty Years' War. And the other main similarity, I think, is the role of religion. In both uh, the historical example and now the role of religion took on its own sort of dynamic; it became destructive, but it also merged and exacerbated existing uh, power political uh, conflicts. And so, what the research that we've been tr- that we've been doing here, uh, here in Cambridge, but we've also had partners uh, in the region and also in Germany, is to try and draw some lessons from this. And the chief lesson, I think, is that one needs uh, an inclusive congress which tries to represent as far as possible every single conflict actor and which um, addresses all the problems at the same time while while also not insisting on a ceasefire, um, while accepting mediation that is not necessarily neutral, um, and while drawing in interim settlements that have been reached in... In advance with into an existing into a sort of a future overall framework and very important also is the role of the guarantee the fact that many conflict parties historically and also now have been reluctant to uh, enter, into, enter into an agreement because of the fear of being attacked again post-war, because of the fear of the other side reneging on this commitment, and that is often, especially I think in the in the Israeli-Palestinian case, a, a, a fear which, which sort of inhibits any settlement to be reached or even inhibits the willingness to sit down at the negotiating table. But what we learn from the Peace of Westphalia is that if it's made a clear early on that every single party mutually and reciprocally guarantees the entire settlement, not just the aspects that are relevant to itself, that this will have an effect of, of fostering confidence in the whole process and also um, trust to some extent uh, and the willingness to negotiate and, and to sign the deal in, in the end and so the the impact that this project has had has been um, relatively considerable to the extent that we've had um, numerous, relatively high-profile practitioners at least endorse the the concept. Uh, Of course, there hasn't been this this sort of Congress that that we envision, but people like Kofi Annan have often uh, spoken about the the necessity of a a piece of Westphalia for the Middle East. Uh, Angela Merkel has talked about this as well, and uh, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, who was then the the foreign minister, attended um, one of our workshops. sorry, the foreign minister of Germany, as did members of the Jordanian court. So this is something that we've been trying to encourage and we've got a, a member of the Arab League coming to our next workshop in November. So hopefully we can drive this forward.
4: Thank you. Um, well, t- since we're in a confessional mood, um, I, like Patrick, I also um, applied to the LSE. Um, I, I was admitted, though. Uh, yes. um, but, um, but then, but I also applied to Oxford and was rejected, so um, we're quits. Um, so, um, well, I think it's fair to say that we we live in a period of um, dislocations. Um, some of the foundations of the post-war liberal order um, appear to be under strain. Um, on this panel, we're we're, here, we're going to hear. I have heard mostly about global challenges, um, geopolitical challenges and climate change. But as a historian of 20th century Britain, my own interests are primarily in the political and social context in which these big challenges are debated and resolved. So I thought I'd set myself the the easy task today of trying to um, speak briefly to the current crisis engulfing us in the UK. and um, by sketching the particular dislocations that underpin it and hopefully opening up for discussion the role that the humanities and social sciences have played in informing public debate in the past and the challenges facing them in trying to do so in the present. There are, I think, uh, two kinds, at least two kinds of dislocations at work. The first is fairly obvious, it's institutional. And, um, the effects, uh, and and affects the democratic processes by which policy is advocated and deliberated. So the Westminster two-party system is fracturing from within by ideological chasms that no longer appear containable within single parties, also by developments buffeting it from outside, so um, declining party membership, the rise of single-issue parties and a rival party of government in Scotland. Our particular system of representative democracy is being tested by referenda and now arguably by the figure of the political strongman who claims to represent the will of the people. Both of them forms of direct representation that the Westminster parliamentary system was not designed to accommodate. But for us in academia, perhaps the most urgent dislocation is that which has shaken the world of public knowledge. That is to say, um, the, the systems of information within which policymakers and the public operate. In Britain, this world of public knowledge has remained remarkably stable until quite recently. It emerged in large part from the humanities and social sciences in the mid-20th century, not least at the LSE, at Peterhouse, and more widely in Cambridge. So I'm thinking in particular of um, the uh, social studies and policy blueprints of William Beveridge, who we've heard a little about, um, of the LSE, the community studies of Michael Young LSE, the economic theories of Friedrich Hayek LSE, the emergence of new explanatory sub-disciplines like historical sociology in the hands of, uh, hands of Philip Abrams, um, who was at the uh, Peterhouse and the LSE, not to mention a host of political historians, uh, moral theorists whose work on conservatism especially helped to shape the intellectual climate of the late 20th century. And these included Michael Oakeshott and Kenneth Minogue at the LSE, Maurice Cowling and Edward Norman at Peterhouse, and Shirley Letwin, who was associated with both institutions. So one doesn't really need to look too hard to find the imprint of these academic enterprises on public policy and public debate. Their impact took many forms, technocratic and applied, educative and discursive, polemical and moralistic, politically aligned and politically neutral. But they all served and operated within a broad liberal consensus. Take Hayek and John Maynard Keynes, at Kings, they defined the opposite poles of Britain's post-war political economy. Keynes championing the managed economy, Hayek the free market economy and both were committed liberals. Um, They were also very committed friends Um, and um, I think the LSE's evacuation to to Cambridge facilitated that and I've discovered that they they were on fire duty on the roof of King's College Chapel together Um, um, Who was looking after our own chapel? I'm not sure, but... um, (laughs) but, um, So these disciplines um, still exist. They're still developing. Today's dislocation, though, stems from the fact that they now occupy a more marginal place than we would wish in mainstream public debate. This is often attributed to popular disenchantment with uh, expert opinion in light of income inequality, wage stagnation, especially since the financial crisis. I also think it's a symptom of the democratization of communication in the digital age. On the one hand, the digital revolution opened up channels of expert information for an ever greater mass of people, promising an ever more informed public. But on the other, it has made it easier to transmit in expert opinions of the kind with which Beveridge, Keynes, Hayek did not have to contend, such that the process of engaging in political debate is now, for many, one that bypasses expert views. So the dislocation of public knowledge in the British political process presents, I think, two challenges. Most obviously, it means the public uh, is less informed than it might be. But this, I think, is, is a timeless problem. By its nature, academic research will always pull ahead of public knowledge on a particular topic. The second challenge, though, I think is much more urgent and is very much of our own time. We've seen how the crisis of knowledge-based political debate can prompt those who are experts or deem themselves well-informed to question the legitimacy of democratic decisions taken by those they deem inexpert. We've seen this most starkly, of course, in the case of Brexit, amid claims that a portion of the 52% were misled because they lacked the knowledge with which to scrutinize the claims of the Vote Leave campaign. And it doesn't end here. So great has been the shock of Brexit that such doubts about the intelligence of the electorate are no longer confined to the Brexit issue uh, itself and will continue to reverberate for some time. So what I'm saying is that we, we have a crisis of confidence between uh, experts and uh, pub- the public, and this is very much mutually felt. And herein, I think, lies the challenge for academia in today's world. How does it present itself as a source of solutions without exacerbating the feeling of alienation that contributed to popular disenchantment with it in the first place? Thank you.
3: Thank you.
5: Thank you. First, I'm honoured to have the opportunity to be part of such a distinguished panel um, and also to have so many Betrayans, colleagues and illustrious guests from LSE in the audience. And I am delighted to be here today because of the occasion we are celebrating. Very frequently I, like many of you, uh, speak at either conferences or workshops to improve our understanding of the world uh, or to audiences of policymakers and business to inform a particular question or, or address a particular problem. And of course, here, we are celebrating an event that truly highlighted that we can embrace others. uh, We can collaborate and take action in difficult situations. Now, climate change is one of these difficult situations, possibly one of the most difficult ones in the world that we're facing today. So over the next few minutes, um, I will discuss a little bit about the role of, of academics and of collaboration to meet the challenge of climate change. And I will leave the confessional for the end of my uh, talk. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I will start with with three key facts. And of course, uh, establishing these facts um, has been a major contribution of academics. Um, Today, the average temperature uh, at the Earth's surface stands at 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We are already seeing changes in uh, weather patterns all over the world, and these patterns are hitting harder and sooner than was predicted just a decade ago. And then something that really struck me, even though I've been working on this for 12 years, the Arctic CS coverage has decreased by 40% over the past 40 years. And of course this is um, resulting in changes in the albedo in the Arctic, and resulting in more melting and uh, of course more uh, warming. So needless to say, there are many, many facts to choose from in this list. These are just the three I like. Um, and so why are we here? We're emitting 40 gigatons uh, per year of CO2. We were at 200 million uh, tons of CO2 in 1850 and uh, 30 billion in the year 2000. And about three quarters of these emissions come from the burning of fossil fuels and industry, so energy, so power, transport, buildings, industry, and a quarter from agriculture. And we know that this comes from um, increases in world population and prosperity since the 1850s that led to increases in energy demand. And this is the main area I work on. And what we all know, of course, is that uh, we're not doing enough. We've made some progress. Uh, So the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was signed by 194 states and the EU, Uh, aims to hold the increase in global average temperature to 2 degrees, of course we're already at 1.1, with the aim of uh, limiting the increase to 1.5 degrees. Um, This was a step forward from the previous agreements from the Copenhagen Accord and the Kyoto Protocol uh, because it brought virtually all countries together to pursue this common goal. But the challenge is extremely daunting. Um, To have a 50% probability of meeting the two degree target, we need to cut emissions by 80% by 2050. And to get to the 1.5 target, we need to get to net zero by 2050, which is the UK government's goal. And the reason why this is all so uh, difficult is because we use energy in everything we do. So we need not just changes in the technologies that we use to produce energy, but also to urban and transport infrastructure, agricultural practices, uh, business practices, political communication, regulation, cultural norms and values. So a societal transition on a short time scale. Now in spite of Paris, and a bright spot I will mention in just a second, change is of course not happening fast enough. Uh, In spite of all of these global conversations and focus in this area, Uh, the share of energy that comes from coal has stayed at 29% uh, globally over the past 27 years. Now academics have a big role to play in all these areas and they have already played a role generating both technology solutions and of course we have a lot of technologies here at Peterhouse, um, but also generating ideas. And, of course, to my right, I have a preeminent example of uh, an academic with ideas uh, changing the global conversation on uh, global climate change by highlighting the cost of not addressing climate change, among many other things. I could give you many other examples, but we do have the preeminent example here. Um, and, um, And one of the bright spots so far has been the progress we have made in innovation in energy technologies. The cost of solar power has come down by a factor of 15,000 since solar cells were first commercialized in 1957. They have come down in cost by 82% just over the past 10 years. The cost of wind power has come down by a factor of five since the mid-80s. It has come down by 42% over the past 10 years. Lithium ion batteries have come down in cost by 89% over the past eight years. And the research in my group and that of many other groups around the world has shown that without a combination of domestic policies over many years, both on the technology push side, funding, research, and development in many areas, but also on the market pull side, creating regulations, fiscal incentives of different kinds. For every different technology, we've seen a different combination of these incentives, sometimes more cost-effective than others, sometimes with more win-win situations than in others, sometimes with more fair consequences than others. Um, But we do know that, that without these policies, um, these changes we have seen would not have happened or at least would not have happened as fast and of course it's not fast enough. Um, so academics are finding that government policy is an important lever uh, to meet this big daunting challenge. And what we're also finding uh, in the research we're doing is that uncommon interactions or bedfellows Uh, we we just uh, talked about really matter. In a project we're working on, we're finding that many of the scientific breakthroughs uh, that were underpinning the cost reductions in solar panels and lithium-ion batteries uh, were were really enabled by spillovers from other areas of technology, from other fields of science, other technologies and other industries. And what we found looking at a microhistory of these technologies and doing a lot of data analysis on patents and, and these sorts of things, is that these spillovers were, in many cases, enabled by these collaborations of strange or uncommon allies uh, working together, uh, often by a government push policy to work on things from the space race, the oil crisis, competition with other nations. In other cases, there were new market opportunities. Um, In my own career, I've moved a lot across disciplines. I did my PhD here in Cambridge in a different college, I'm sorry, Um, that we shall remain nameless. <laughs> and I've uh, worked uh, across all of these disciplines, and increasingly I'm working more directly with policymakers. So we're working with the German Development Bank, even with the South Cambridge Char City Council, work with the US Department of Energy to try to not just get more impactful research, more focused on the problem, but also to uh, have an impact sooner, because again, time is on the essence here. Um, these interactions are not for everyone and of course can be risky, uh, particularly with the system of incentives in academia. But um, what I would argue is that given the size of the climate challenge, uh, many are taking and should take this risk. Thank you. Nick.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's. Um, I'm very happy to be here because being of Peter House and of the LSE, but particularly because of the close friendships which um, Steve Weedcroft referred to um, in the piece that Bridget read out. Steve was um, a president of the Students' Union at the LSE. His wife, Joyce, was also subsequently, a couple of years later, president of the Union at the LSE. And it was a remarkable, set of friends. Close friends, distinguished, deeply strong, moral people. And um, one indication of the closeness of that friendship, those friendships, is that we became close friends of those people. So, Chris Freeman, uh, Norm McKenzie, particularly Steve Wheatcroft, they were our friends, as well as our parents' friends. It's so uh, special that. Julian Jr. here, here tonight. Um, now, I want to take up the story of the role of ideas through climate change, sustainability, internationalism. And I want to do it through the key strands in any discussion, the values, the analysis of the problem, and the politics. And I've lived my life through all three of them in large measure now. Um, Communications, let me think of as part of politics. Perhaps we can come back to that, because that's so important. And uh, my father would have, would have been surprised by this, but I've become a real fan of the Pope when it comes to communications. Now, let me say something first about values, then quickly analysis and politics. Um, it, for the lucky ones amongst us, the values... It's not true of everybody, of course, but for the lucky ones amongst us, I'm one of them, um, the values are shaped by nurtured by by family, and I want to illustrate that by reading out just a a short part of what Chris Freeman said at my mother's memorial gathering um, uh, some uh, 25 years ago, Um, because whilst it's a personal statement, I think it actually illustrates the general issues in a very tight way, and it also says it through the LSE, so uh, that's what I wanted to do. Um, let me do that quickly. This is Chris Freeman was a, a remarkable man, a great historian of technological change in the tradition of, of uh, Schumpeter, uh, and now his ideas are absolutely at the front of our thinking of technological uh, change again. Um, I, I'll read it just a short bit, as what he said at a memorial gathering. I first met Marion in 1939 in Cambridge, Both of us were students at the LSE, which was evacuated to Cambridge during the war. We occupied a building called Grove Lodge, and I think it would be true to say that because of the circumstances, we were a close community. But although she was very active politically from her student days and throughout her life, unlike me, Chris Freeman, she was never a dogmatist or an ideologue. Her socialism came from her sympathy with people who were suffering and exploited wherever they were. Then as now, the students at LSE came from all over the world and we had an unusually high proportion of foreign students, even in wartime. We had Indians, Belgians, Chinese, Turks, Americans, Iraqis, and of course, refugees from the countries of Central Europe, then under fascist rule, Germans, Austrians, Hungarians, Poles. Marian befriended fellow students of all nationalities uh, and our student societies had a genuinely international spirit as well as an, an international comp- composition. Marion more than any of us, embodied that spirit. So you can see that was um, internationalism. It was socialism. It was recognizing the displaced people. It was fighting against poverty. Those values which you know, I've articulated through Chris about the individuals are surely those values that we're going to need to tackle climate change and sustainability in what comes. Um, My mother married um, Bert, who, she was half Muslim and half Christian, my mother, but uh, she married a a Jewish refugee who came to this country shortly after Kristallnacht from uh, Germany. Uh, But he sort of became an honorary LSE, uh, he was an honorary LSE person, I think, in the sense that he was at the core of that group, and the values in large measure came from uh, him as well. He didn't have formal education, uh, but he read, and he talked, and he argued, he s- discussed, and he fought fascism all his life. And uh, he saw straight through Bolshevism. He saw immediately that inherent in the uh, philosophy was um, domination and persecution. Um, he'd seen it in fascism, and he saw it in uh, direct experience, of course, of fascism. He saw it in, in Bolshevism. And, um, Again, I was lucky. I, I was never in danger of uh, joining the trots or the. Uh, <laughs> for, for, for that reason. I, I learned I learnt how awful they are at home, um, not by seeing it, but by anal- the analysis that uh, my parents uh, offered. So let me turn to uh, analysis. Now, obviously, you have to be very fast, and I want to take the whole sweep of history in the 70 years since the Second World War. As Bridget pointed out, Um, that two world wars and the Great Depression, surely, and blood everywhere, um, we had to see that the uh, inability to collaborate was deeply, deeply damaging and, as Bridget described, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the uh, UN, the Bretton Woods Institutions, and the uh, WTO, the beginnings of Europe, came out of that direct, direct experience. Of course, it's still a bigger problem when we talk about climate change. Um, but it's a very different kind of problem because we have to use our ability to look ahead and understand, rather than the very direct experience. But it's even bigger in, uh, in my view. So that architecture which they laid out led to 70 years of quite extraordinary growth. Um, income per capita went up by a factor of four in those 70 years. Uh, population went up by a factor of three the reason we should celebrate that people stop dying so young. 3 times 4 is 12. Decimal points don't matter here. You're talking about a 10, 12, 15 expansion in the weight of economic output. And that, of course, was largely fossil-fueled and put enormous pressure on uh, ecology, which we've recognized much too late. All sorts of other things associated with that remarkable economic change, some of them much more worrying than the lifting of the many people out of poverty that it saw. Uh, Financialization since the 1970s has seen uh, savings and investment, the great story in macroeconomics and the link between them as being provided by the financial sector, as being usurped by the financialization of the economy as a whole, short-termism, and part of the story of huge wealth going to a very narrow part of the population. So that economic story has got plenty of problems, but its remarkable success has to be recognised. The ecological weight, I won't go through again, but Laura has already described that very clearly. But the last time we were at 3 degrees, and we're headed for over 3 degrees, if we uh, simply look at the Paris Commitments for 2030 that came in. Uh, Last time um, we were at 3 degrees was about 3 million years ago, and the sea levels were 10 to 20 metres higher than now. And as uh, Laura described, this is accelerating. The, the, already the West Antarctica Ice sheet has probably become unstable. The, uh, when the, um, the Amazon forest could turn into savanna at some tipping point, which is between 20% and 40% reduction of the forest, we're close to 20% now and uh, Laura referred to other tipping points this is deeply deeply dangerous just at 2 degrees hundreds of millions would probably have to move it's going to be really hard to hold to 2 degrees possibly billions and if hundreds of millions or billions have to move uh, this is a story of severe extended conflict the reason for the conf- conflict we, we couldn't negotiate away so we have to people don't really get the stakes we're playing for the young get the stakes we're playing for, because they've been educated properly. But the olders have not. And it's very important that we get that across. So that ecological story is uh, is fundamental. So economics, ecology, technology, as Laura's described, is going to be a huge part. Not the whole part, as Laura emphasized. is going to be a huge part of what uh, comes through. We have the great advantage that AI, robotics, and the revolution it's bringing is coming at the same time as the drive to the zero carbon economy, which will also be fundamental change. And AI robotics is going to be fundamental in running the energy systems, the transport systems, the cities, and so on. So in a sense, having those two going on at the same time is a lot better than if they And we have to put them together. But it's a lot better if they, than if they happened uh, separately. Society and politics, the last strand of, sort of 70 years of history, if, if you like, um, is that we're going to have to recreate the internationalism which we did create in the 40s after those two world wars and the Great Depression. The biggest, most important countries in the world by a long way are China and India, just simply population, but also if you take thousands of years of culture, whichever way you look at it, China and India, the two most important countries. China, the biggest emitter now. India will be the biggest emitter by 2030. They'll meet China on the way down. So our relationships, those are the two countries I spent a big part of my life working in, but the relationship with those countries will be of overwhelming importance and collaboration, working together with them both. It's been a big part of my life, but it's also clearly possible. But you have to be friends, you have to have Chinese and Indian students in your universities, we do. Um, but that has to be built, and it is being built, but it is fundamental to the, uh, to the whole thing. This is a story, if we get it right, of inclusive growth uh, and one that starts now. This is a world economy that has insufficient demand. We need to invest very strongly in sustainable infrastructure will also sharpen supply. We unleash, and we are unleashing, a story of discovery, innovation, investment, and growth of the Schumpeterian kind that Chris Freeman would write about. Uh, and there is no growth story. There's no high carbon growth story in the medium to long term because we simply destroy the environment in which we live. This is the inclusive growth story. It's in our hands. We can see how to begin. Laura and her friends are showing us the way. I'm very much involved in the whole international politics of it all. I came back yesterday from the climate summit in New York. Um, this is a story that's in our grasp. It's, uh, if we take on the ecological challenge, what we can do is overcome many of the economic problems that we see, we'll put the technology to good use, and we can draw people together in a more cohesive way, both within communities, in nations, and across nations. Um, To coin a phrase, uh, yes, we can. Um, But whether we will, and this is what is deeply worrying, and what we have an enormous responsibility to help change, whether we will is a major question. It worries us all, at least I hope it worries us all. Um, And we as academics have an enormous opportunity to contribute to changing the yes Yes, We Can into Yes, We Will.
1: Thank you, Nick. We've got time for some questions and discussion from the audience so I'm going to open the floor and if you could uh, raise your hand and just introduce yourself briefly and then ask a question. I think I'll take them in batches of threes if I may. Uh, The gentleman here, the gentleman here, and I need a woman. Thank you very much, the woman back there.
7: Hello, is this working? Yep. Uh, I'm Paul. I studied law here in 2004, 2007, um, and I'm currently a barrister. um, And I also uh, founded Lawyers for Extinction Rebellion recently, which might give you an idea of the tenor of my question to come. Um, I find it interesting that there is an event to commemorate uh, Peterhouse's actions during one of the great emergencies we faced, and at the same time, there's two learned experts in the current emergency that we face. And uh, speaking the language of doing something differently. Um, I, th- I think Peterhouse House has always risen oh there we go. <laughs> has always risen to the challenge has always risen to the challenge uh, throughout history. So for instance, not just during the Second World War, but also during the Civil War, we melted down our plate to support the Royalist cause. So <laughs> doing, doing something differently now, what does that entail? And um, it's good to hear that Peterhouse divested from fossil fuels last year, but actually the scale of the emergency means they must do more. Do something differently. So, will Peterhouse commit to declaring a climate emergency? And following on from that, taking real and meaningful action to deal with this crisis, particularly right? maybe asking these experts whose expertise we have to what would you say actual um, proportionate response by Peterhouse would be to the scale of this crisis? I'm thinking of things like carbon neutral by 2030 and go big, imaginative and saying actually let's turn the hundreds, if not thousands, of acres that Peterhouse owned for agricultural land into um, carbon sinks and rewilding projects what should Peterhouse
1: house do to itself have an impact on this concept? i'm going to let nick answer that question uh, the gentleman here yes uh,
8: see if it works for me richard Balf i was at the uh, lse in the late 60s um this is my first step inside peter house but uh oh. i'm i'm really directing it to the, our first speaker christina because it's 30 years since the Berlin Wall fell. In fact, next month, November, and uh, the first 30 years, after, the first 15 years after that, was spent with the countries of Eastern Europe trying to join the EU, and basically being very well behaved. The last 15 years since they've joined has seen a re-emergence of old hatreds and a lot of frozen conflicts. Now, I think it's. Irrational and unreasonable to expect Russia to leave the Ukraine, They're not, uh, to leave Crimea. They're not going to do it. But President Macron has recently launched quite a good initiative, aiming for détente towards Russia. And I'd like, probably Christina, but anyone else who likes to comment, to comment on how we can get back to talking to each other. Because I'm, I'm sorry, the British government just believes in shouting at the Russians, (laughs) and it doesn't work. I'm a member of the Council of Europe. I see the way in which the Nordic countries, for instance, and countries like Germany, are much more constructive in trying to find a detente, because we won't win by shouting, but I'd welcome any views on how we can build on the Macron initiative to get a better and more peaceful Europe.
1: The, the woman in the back, Uh
9: I'm a Hi, oh. master of so oh. My comments are concerned with the... I think, pardon, with what the last two speakers dealt with. It is quite true that there is room for optimism. We look at the photovoltaic cells, the generation of renewable energy. Now, what puzzles me is that the West, in particular, is very slow in following the example of Japan, South Korea, and latterly China, in the fact that you dismiss the use of the internal combustion engine, so that you go for low-carbon economy, almost zero-carbon economy, by not using, of necessity, the battery, the conventional lithium battery that uh, Laura mentioned. But the fuel cell, you know, the fuel cell has been around since 1839. And many people, Lord Rayleigh and Ludwig Mond, many others tried to develop it. (coughs) Nowadays, there is a specific decision made by the uh, Ministry of uh, Technology and Economics in uh, Japan to go for the carbon economy, for the hydrogen economy, and that by 2045, there will be no use of fossil fuels. And this is now being repeated, very much so, in the East. But it's very slow in the West. George W. Bush, in his State of Union address in 2003, said something like this. Because our scientists and engineers can solve difficult problems, the children who are born today will be driving their first car motivated by the fuel cell. Well, that never came about because the Secretary of State for Energy under Obama, Chu, was not convinced that the fuel cell would work. And it is not simple. It's not very easy. But it can be done. And I just wonder, what the two experts thought, whether, I mean, you come back, Nick, from New York, I hope that this was on the agenda.
1: I'm going to give that one to Laura, and maybe if we could pass the mic to the woman in front there. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh,
10: panel. It was really... I can't hear you very well. Was it, it, was a, it was very good listening to all of you. Thank you. Um, it was 15 years ago, I took the flight from India to join uh, Registrate LSE today. So...
6: Try to get the mic to work.
10: Hello? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Kripa Dwarakna. It was um, 15 years ago exactly, I um, came to Registrate LSE. Um, but then, at that time, Facebook was just, I think, between LSE and Harvard, they were like talking about, And but now, in today's world, it's different. Um, And going back to climate change, and we we know about the school girl who is uh, causing a stir in the climate change um, uh, area now. Because of that, and the social media, lots of people, both experts, um, not exactly experts, non-experts, talk about it. And on radio, TV, they come up with few solutions, like um, meat, cut down meat, or uh, no... Taking no flights—very simple. Like they just zoom it down to one or two points. I was wondering how academia can help, or um, if it can help in synthesizing those simple and on or difficult options in non-technical language for those non-experts.
1: Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions before I turn to the panel? Oh yes, maybe I'll take one from the woman in the back.
2: Hello, uh, my name's Ang Harrod. I'm the programs manager at the LSE Faith Centre, and I read history at Peterhouse. Um, it's a great evening. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, my question is for Dr. Milden. Um, your research seems really fascinating and poses a potential step forward for what's happening in the region. We work on an annual Interfaith Encounter trip to Israel and to Palestine. And I'm wondering what your focus or advice would be for both next steps for peace process in the region, uh, what's viable, and also what you would say to our students across the Christian, Muslim and Jewish faiths looking to do peace building work on campus. Okay, very
1: good. And I'm going to add a question for Garant on uh, the current... uh, What happened yesterday in Parliament was not exactly um, an edifying moment on the state of public knowledge and the manipulation of public knowledge. How should experts, academics engage differently in the world of public knowledge given the very different ecosystem in which we have to operate today? I'm going to start with Christina, start us off.
2: you ask me about whether the French have a better approach and what, what should happen in comparison to the Germany when we look at Russia and how to engage with Russia? Um, I think, well, if you think about the parliamentary debate yesterday, then it's, you know, where do you start when you have this Brexit business going on and you are not even able to comu- communicate in a sort of prudent and pragmatist fashion in your own parliament? then, you know, how do you start out on foreign policy? But let me point out a couple of things. I think Macron you have to read in a very interesting way, because when you think about his initiatives also in the EU about sort of European security um, ideas, then there's always a goal is tinged to it that somehow the French and the Russians can do something special, and that elevates France uh, on the platform in terms of great powers. Now, if you look at what Angela Merkel has done, it's quite different. And I wouldn't call it a detente. When Frank-Walter Steinmeier was foreign minister, he liked to refer that what she was doing was a Brandian or kind of Ostpolitik. But I would beg to differ. I think, and I think we have to see it with the background, that she is also a very good Russian speaker. I think she pursues more a policy of deterrence and dialogue, of knowing very much we know where the red lines are, and at the same time trying to keep dialogue open, because I think she has Putin's number, she knows how he functions, you know, when he brings a dog and and she's sitting there, all these little diplomatic games. And that is quite a difficult position in Germany actually to hold, because also on the left spectrum, you have that whole Putin for discussion going on as well. So that's why in terms of what you see that Germany does in a really big public limelight, Uh, You don't see her say very much publicly, because there is all that domestic debate going on at home. But I would like you to think about another leader who also speaks Russian very well, which is the Finnish president. And of course, Finland is a neighbor of Russia. It's not in the NATO like the Baltic republics. It is a member of the Arctic Council. It is watching what's happening with climate change, the opening of the north route, the shipping lanes, the competition between China and and Russia in those waters that are potentially opening up. And there the view is also, you have to know what your own position is, what your own defense is, and negotiate like that from that sort of internally firm position of strengths. Again, you make very clear where where your red lines are, but you're also constantly staying in communication to avoid any kind of provocation. I think the problem here is, it's not just what I mentioned in terms of the parliament, but of course, if you think about the Skripal affair and other kinds of things, and you think of the lack of leadership that has been there, and you, and you see, you know, British politicians look into the Americans, where also you have chaos because you have a man dictating politics by tweets, then you are already sort of at a neuralgic point. You have to actually start stepping back and really thinking as a leader. You know, if I put myself in the shoes of the other side, where are the opening points? Where, in informal ways, on the margins of summits or informal conversation can I find particular points of commonality? So maybe, for example, because Britain sits also on the Arctic Council, that is a forum where you're not meant to talk about security. You could start talking about climate, for example, together, at least in the same room. I think that would be a way forward. I would be, as, as a British Prime Minister, also cautious to think, am I going to do what Macron is doing? That's, I think, a very particular French affair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Patrick. Yes,
3: yeah, so I was asked about the, the the next steps for the Middle East. Um, I think sort of coming at it from the perspective of uh, the project that, that we're working on here at Cambridge, the, the, the parallels to the Thirty Years' War uh, and the lessons learned from Westphalia, the, <laughs> the analogy is not, it does not exactly work in this case because it's, in the Thirty Years' War there was already uh, direct uh, full-scale conflict between great powers which, which uh, overtook a, a, local, a localised regional sort of conflict, whereas now it seems to be um, the case that there is a risk of this, this kind of war breaking out at the moment particularly between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but that doesn't mean that the same sort of principles don't apply. The Westphalian settlement did not only end real, f- full-scale wars, it also uh, diffused um, other crises and ended cold wars. So I guess the the main steps would be, ta- the lessons to be drawn are that one should start negotiating uh, at, on an inclusive, all-inclusive level, as inclusive as possible, which includes taking on board unpalatable um, groups and actors, every single group that has a power factor, that, that, that has power political force or that has um, moral legitimacy needs to be on board and that this process of negotiating, if need be over months or years, can foster um, understanding of the other side, can, f- can foster a real sort of comprehension of what red lines are, what the, the real interests are that need to be to be harmonized um, and that one one must not necessarily wait for a ceasefire to be in place. Um, You also mentioned the the Israel-Palestine issue specifically, Um, and I would say that any localized conflict um, is always embedded into a broader geopolitical context. It never exists in a vacuum, so even if you do even if there were a sort of a, a manageable working solution on the ground it would always it, that that works in theory it would always need to satisfy the the interests of allied powers of, of powers that that have a stake in, in the matter so there needs to be there would in that case i think need to be a, a, a two sort of track approach there would need to be a, an agreement among the relevant great powers who have who then have the ability to to Uh, force their junior partners to make the necessary concessions. I don't think the Israelis, for example, would be willing to agree to the kind of concessions that are necessary for a working solution without major pressure from the United States. The United States would only apply that pressure if they get other concessions with regard to other areas such as, for example, Saudi Arabia. So it all needs to be tied up as as closely as possible.
1: Making the problem bigger actually makes it easier to solve.
7: It's mm, one of the
1: paradoxes of yeah. international negotiations. Uh, Gareth, mm. over to you. Thank you. So, um, making the problem bigger. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's um, turn to British politics. Well, quite, yeah. <laughs> um,
4: yes, where to start? Um, well, um, so I was asked how how much academics um, engage differently um, in the political and policy processes. Um, well, I suppose the first thing to, to, to acknowledge is that we, we're, we're sort of dealing here with two audiences. We're dealing with policymakers who are in a technocratic position um, and are able to implement policies, design policies and implement policies. Um, But in many ways, before we get to that stage, we need to address ourselves to public opinion. Um, We need to mobilise public opinion. We need to search for public approval. Um, So how you do that is a very good question. As a historian, I would, and historian of the 20th century, um, there is an interesting transition um, in the way academics um, engage with the process of policymaking that takes place in the mid 20th century. Up to the mid 20th century, a lot of academics tend to work very directly with political parties. So, Harold Lasky at the LSE is, is probably one of the great examples. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. The political parties are those who hope to be in government and in a position to implement policies. Um, but if you look at um, the kind of policy agendas that really um, took off a new post war, so things like um, well, climate change to some extent, um, environment, um, women's lib, those sorts of things, um, they were driven mostly by um, single-issue protest movements um, allied to interest groups and non-governmental organisations. So in some ways, um, I think um, our task is, yes, to engage with the political parties, but, um, <coughs> but I think the history of the post-war period suggests that we're on to a better wicket if we, if we actually engage more um, directly and more thoroughly with non-party Organization. So NGOs, interest groups, protest movements.
5: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Laura. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer the question of uh, Sir John, and it was about hydrogen, and why are we not doing more about hydrogen in the West? I actually worked on hydrogen fuel cells in 2001 uh, in Germany, so I was doing on board methanol reforming, and back in 2001, uh, and uh, five years or so after that, It is true that the US, Germany, many other countries were betting on hydrogen as the solution for reducing emissions in the transportation sector. And uh, of course, as as Sir John described, it uh, changed. um, The support moved to uh, electric vehicles, battery vehicles. And um, I see this is being recorded, so I'm not going to say many names, but I had many conversations. I was in uh, the Harvard Kennedy School for nine years between 2007 and 2015. And during these years, I had conversations exactly about why. So why did this happen? And the view at the highest levels at the Department of Energy was that um, there were three big problems with hydrogen for general transportation. I'll say where I think hydrogen has certainly a very important role. Perhaps it will have more of a role in transport. Right right now, the balance is more tilted towards electrification. The first one was where you get the hydrogen form. Right now, it's mainly methane. Methane, of course, we have greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, electrolysis, but it's very energy intensive, it's more expensive, I've done also work on this. So yes, we can make it, but it's still very expensive to make it via electrolysis at a large scale. Right now, the main method is still based on fossil fuels. So one, how you make it, we need more breakthroughs on this. Uh, The second question was infrastructure, piping hydrogen to enough places so that you can charge vehicles. Um, And the third one, which is really has been resolved with the, in Japan, the Toyota Mirage, they have a hydrogen vehicle. it's uh, how you store it in cars so that it's safe. Uh, I think the third one is not really an issue. So that, that was the main reason why this happened. I think in the truck um, sector where you have, uh, or ships or other uh, modes of transportation, where you have centralized points of charge, where you can maybe have an electrolyzer, you don't need the pipelines for charging, it can play a major role there. Maybe we will see breakthroughs and maybe there should be more than is happening. Um, but those are the reasons, and I think right now because of this huge improvements we've seen in batteries it's hard to see that given that there's not that many resources, as you pointed out, going into hydrogen and that we don't have the infrastructure, it's hard to see that the generalized uh, um, personal transport will be relying on on hydrogen. But there are a lot of areas in which it may, may be better. And in fact, again, tracks is one of them. Um, I know that the that, uh, luckily uh, Lord Stern is going to answer the question about Peterhouse, but I will point out um, some of the things that we are doing in the university uh, in Cambridge. So I, I, I alluded to some of the work that we're doing with the South Cambridge Church City Council to meet the net zero carbon goal. So I had a student over the summer working very closely with them on developing, developing this plan. We also have here actually one of the leaders of CASP, which is the Cambridge University Science and Policy Exchange, which has, has a team, uh, Carla is over there, <laughs> uh, working on developing the net zero uh, plans for Cambridge, and of course, they impact Peterhouse because people get to Peterhouse through transport and have electricity through the grid. So we are, uh, uh, and this is one of the areas where it's actually hard to do as an academic. We don't have the incentives, but as I mentioned in my remarks, it's se- I feel it's essential to do this, and, and again, I think the students and, and researchers are really calling for this. So I think there's how many, 10 working in CASP, working with um, Cam- the Cambridge Star City Council on the net zero plans, because we- they do need the expertise. Nick.
6: Thank you. Uh, j- just as a footnote what Laura said, um, at, uh, in, in the UN um, on, on Monday, you got um, Maersk, uh, break, the biggest shipping company, declaring net zero by 2050. And for them, it's largely a uh, hydrogen story. Uh, I sat next to Martin Lundqvist, who runs SSAB, a big Swedish steel firm. And they're now making uh, steel with hydrogen rather than coking coal. And they do make their hydrogen from electrolysis. So I I think it's on the way. I think we have this picture of Australia covered with solar panels um, using electrolysis to create hydrogen and then liquefying and uh, putting it in the the ships that they use for liquid liquid natural gas, sending it off to um, China and Japan and elsewhere, it's really possible. And when you start doing things on scale, one thing we've learned is how fast those costs fall if you're really uh, committed. Um, So I think we're going to see that a lot, but I I suspect, as Laura said, it's sort of in the shipping area or some specialised applications within steel and so on. Now, what should universities do about all this? Well, the key thing is to do what you're good at, Where where are your contributions going to be the biggest? Where are you going to move the needle? Where are you going to make really big change? It's education, research, engagement. That's what we're good at, and that's where we should uh, focus. Why are the young people coming through so strongly now, whereas people up to 25 were educated on this? They understood it. The schools are on this case, and they've been there for quite a while, and we should... Salute the job that they've done. Uh, I listened to Greta in the General Assembly on Monday, and where did she, and she's absolutely on top of the science. I sat on panels with um, 16-year-olds. We had uh, the group at LSE on uh, Friday. They understand this stuff. They're on top of it. They're on top of the detail. They're not just shouting. What they're doing is showing you know, this is the detail of the crisis that we're in. And the very best of them, not all of them, the very best of them start to go into the detail of how we get out of it. So the first thing is education. Of course, that's the school. They're doing a good job. But much of that education has to come at university. MIT won't let anybody leave MIT unless they've taken some classes in sustainability. We formed at the beginning of, last, the beginning of this year the Global Alliance of University on Climate. Mm-hmm. It was an initiative of Tsinghua University in China, and the co-chairs of Tsinghua and uh, oh, LSE, and Cambridge, of course, one of the first members of that, and Stephen, too, very much uh, involved. Mm-hmm. So education, research, and public engagement, those are the absolute priorities for university. You know, that's the biggest thing they can do to change the world. Um, it does matter how they run their portfolios. It does matter how they run their estates. That is important. But it's not the first thing. The first thing is, where do you make the biggest difference? Now, I've, tried to be argued, I've been trying for a, a very large number of years to make the case that uh, we're in a climate crisis. Would it add a great deal if one particular institution like this declared it to be emergency? Maybe. The big thing is what you do. What are you doing to tackle this problem? And that's the big challenge. Now, I've worked a bit on divestment. The best example out there, and it deserves a much bigger story than it's got, is AP4, the big Swedish investment company. What do they do? They look, they were very big, and it matters, and we're going to need very big Um, investment vehicles to do this, but we can construct them and we can do them. They looked across their portfolio. They look at retail. They look at car uh, companies. They look at airlines. They look right across the board and they ask the question, which one is the worst on this issue? And then they sell it from their portfolio and they say, why? And that's a really powerful no, we're the London School of Economics. We ought to understand incentives. Suppose I ring up BP one morning and say, I've discovered you're an oil company, I don't like you, I'm selling your shares. Well, what do BP do? Well, they're under a bit of pressure to, not enough in my view, but under a bit of pressure to work away on uh, a slice of their activity that's in renewables, a tiny fraction of what they do. Now, don't get me wrong, we should sell those shares, but their biggest story is when you work on the demand side and the supply side, at the same time. And that's exactly the kind of thing that AP4 does. Airlines demand uh, we should be selling our shares in the most inefficient airlines that waste fuel. And we should say, uh, why? If we're picking off the oil companies, let's pick off first Exxon Mobil, which has played such a big part, as our friend Naomi Oreskes has shown, in undermining the science. That way, you build the incentive structures into your divestment policy much more powerfully than just concentrating on the supply side. Although you should, and let's, but we've got to be clever in that. And you've got to think and you've got to use your anal- analytic that the analytical powers that the subjects that uh, we practice give us.
1: Okay. So I wanted to first start by thanking the panelists for giving us such a rich array of issues to, uh, to think about. I've been, as I've been sitting here, reflecting on what, what would have our predecessors, Bridget, have made of this evening. And I, uh, I came away with three thoughts. One, they'd be really surprised that these two institutions are now run by women.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would be
1: really weird.
6: But I think run is a, is a strange verb in this. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs>
1: Anyway, that's a big—that's a deeper conversation. I think. Um, <laughs> I think the second thing is they'd be incredibly pleased at the rich array of connections between Peterhouse and the LSE that exist still, 80 years later, which is fantastic. Uh, and I think they would be so delighted that that still happened. And I guess my third reflection is that I often think that previous generations, and some of you whose families and parents probably had great turmoil and upheavals in their lives, and you look now, and we reflect now on what we consider upheavals, they seem pretty small. And I suspect they, in the midst of war, you know, if I was told, oh, if you have to move the LSE to Cambridge next month, you know, it, it would be such a huge thing, and yet they did it. And they made a go of it, and they managed it. And I think they would say to us, you guys are still pretty lucky compared to the circumstances that we faced in those years. And they would probably warn us that we need to keep focused on avoiding the circumstances that they faced 80 years ago. And I think that's probably a a sobering thought for us but also a thought that means that we really need to redouble our efforts to change the discourse of public knowledge on all of the issues that we've talked about today, be it the New World Order, the Middle East, British politics, and climate change, that we really need to put our shoulders behind those issues to avoid the circumstances 80 years ago that brought us together and continue to celebrate coming together for more positive reasons. So thank you all very much. Thank you to the speakers. Thank you to Peter House for your wonderful hospitality. Um,
0: just in conclusion, very briefly, my thanks to Minouche and to the panel for a very stimulating discussion. We began with a very small, uh, a few dozen academics and a few hundred students moving to Cambridge at a very specific point, we ended up talking about the globe going back billions of years actually and forward to the future, posing problems, looking at threats, not really coming up with answers. But as you said, Christina, often the connections are made on the periphery, in the sidelines, that bring together people or ideas, which then yield fruits. So who knows, today maybe we've sowed some seeds which might yield more fruits. And may I all invite you now, if you feel like it, to join us for a drink in the combination.